Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. And we are on the last episode of the Road to Emmaus series today. My gosh, this has probably been the longest series we have ever recorded, 24 episodes total to get through the Old Testament and the major Messianic prophecies. But before we jump into things today, I want to let you guys know about our Israel trip that's going to be coming up in January of 2023. Now, it's still a ways away, but we're going to start advertising it now because some of you need to get your passports. If you're interested in going on this very special biblical archaeology tour, you can go to evidenceforfaith.org slash 2023Israel. Michael Lane and Dr. Stephen Notley are going to be team teaching this trip and taking you through the different historical sites in Israel to help you see scripture come alive and help you understand kind of how did these things happen? Where did they happen? What did things look like? Why are these sites significant? This is going to be a very unique opportunity to see this with Michael and Dr. Stephen Notley teaching at the sites. So to get more information on that, you can go to evansforfaith.org slash 2023Israel or click on the events tab. We have the dates. Those are going to be from January 4th to the 16th. You can also check out the itinerary there. And there's also a lot of information on the trip itself. The only thing we do not have confirmed yet are the price and then registration is not open. Those will be coming in the next few days as we get it finalized. So, but the one thing you can do right away is if you don't have a passport, get your passport application going. So as always, this broadcast is supported by listeners just like you. If you'd like to help support the broadcast and keep it free, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And without further ado, here is Michael Lane in episode 24 of The Road to Emmaus, Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament. Welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. So glad you're joining me as we are continuing and actually finishing up today a study that we've been doing for a long time in these podcasts on the road to Emmaus, the Messianic prophecies of the Messiah found in the Old Covenant. And today we are coming to a conclusion on this. We're finally getting the end of, of all these. We're going to be dealing with the book of Zechariah and the book of Malachi as we finish off this wonderful series. And I hope you've been enjoying this. I've certainly enjoyed this. I love this this type of stuff, uh, this, uh, these Old Testament prophecies. And just, if, just to let you um, recall here for a moment that what we're doing is we're only looking at, looking at the major prophecies, not all of them. There's over 250 um, prophecies of the old, in, found in the Old Covenant of the Messiah. And we are only dealing with the major ones. There's about 84 of these. And today, as we're starting off, um, and to finish this up, we're going to be in the book of Zechariah, as I said. So we're at number 76, 76. And it's Zechariah chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. And I am entitling this, and again, it's Zechariah chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. I'm titling this one, the Messiah takes away our sins. The Messiah takes away our sins. To me, this is one of the most amazing prophecies uh, of all that you come across dealing with Jesus. I love this one. I, I uh, use this a lot of times, this passage, a lot of times in many of my Bible studies um, and times when I'm speaking and stuff. But let's take a look at what the book of Zechariah, we're, we're at the very, getting close to the very end now of the Old Covenant, the Old 
Testament. And there are many prophecies, as you're going to see. This book is full of Messianic prophecies, and we're going to do a number of them here. But this one here, number 76, um, is concerning Messiah, and let's see what this says. So, again, reading out of the English Standard Version, here we go. Here now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his friend, sorry, to invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Now that is the prophecy, but did you catch it where it says, I will remove the iniquity. Iniquity is another word for sin. I will remove sin in a single day. I mean, this is major. Now, first of all, what you saw as we started reading this right off, it, it, we get the Messianic title. We've seen this so many times in the past, numerous times, the title, The Branch. And The branches we've already discovered so many times when you see this, it's talking about the Messiah. And so it's a, it's a title for the Messiah. And it says that the Messiah is going to remove sin in a single day. Now, no doubt, this is referring to Jesus's death on the cross, which was in one afternoon, well, start, starting in the morning, going through the mid part of the afternoon, but in, it was in one day, and it happened to be on a Passover. That's when this is taking place, and so um, on the eve of this Passover, we, we see this holy event taking place, and this is just absolutely amazing that on a Passover, if you think back to Passover in the Exodus, that the, the people of Israel were saved. Here, the Messiah is saving mankind. In a single day, he removes sin in a single day. And then in the end, of course, we have peace, security, and contentment, which is what exists after. Now, this is talking about not just with peace with God, which we have right now, but in the coming time, in the future, we will have eternal peace with God. So that's a phenomenal prophecy. Number 76, the Messiah taking away our sins, that that it is prophesied that sin would be removed in a single day, Jesus' death on the cross. How cool was that? Let's go to number 77. In Zechariah chapter 6 this time, and we're going to look at verses 12 and 13, and I'm entitling this one, Messiah the King Priest. Messiah the King Priest. And as we read, And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Okay, this is a very interesting prophecy, and actually it's used by John in his gospel in the 19th chapter, verse 5. It says, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. 
Now, I'm sure Pilate did not realize and recognize at the moment that he was quoting out of the book of Zechariah, but that is exactly what happened. Behold, the man is a title given by God um, in this passage, and Pilate uses it at the trial. So Zechariah, in writing this, uses it to acknowledge that the Messiah— uh, to announce the Messiah, and that Pilate is going to use this also to announce Jesus at the trial. It's the same thing. These these two verses from both Zechariah and from John say this and, and show that these things are related. So behold the man. And, you know, we have some songs and hymns and stuff that, that actually has that phrase in it. And the phrase comes from both Zechariah and from John in the 19th uh, chapter of his gospel. We see this. The man, remember here in what we saw also, it's referring to who's the man? It was the branch. What's the branch? We've already determined that through many prophecies, that's a messianic title. And then it says, shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And that's what the branch, um, the Messiah will do. He is the king. The Messiah is stated to be a king and he will rule. But also it says that he will be a priest. And we've seen this already too. Going back into some of the earlier lessons, when we are in the book of Genesis with Melchizedek, we see this whole thing portrayed that, that the Messiah would be not just a king, but he would be uh, a priest, a better priest than even Aaron and the descendants of Aaron would be, um, the ultimate priest. And we see this in the book of Hebrews. The writer of the book of Hebrews goes into great lengths, uh, especially in chapter 6, talking about um, how Jesus will be this Messiah, King, Priest. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20 reads, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, we are seeing Jesus compared not to Aaron, but to Melchizedek, um, who was the, the priest of Salem, which is Jerusalem. Um, but that's back in the days of Abraham. But it's talking about that the Messiah is going to be a priest king, and he's the branch. So we see so many messianic things in there. Let's move to number 78. Number 78, Zechariah chapter 9. And we're going to look at just a couple of verses here, 9, 10, and 11. And many are going to be familiar with this because this is often read in, in church services on Palm Sunday because this deals with Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday is a, a very special day. So uh, Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 11, and I'm entitling this one, On a Little Donkey, On a Little Donkey. Uh, and this is talking about Christ riding into Jerusalem, of course. So Palm Sunday, very special day, very special time. Uh, we still celebrate it in uh, Christendom. Uh, that's when Jesus rose, rode into Jerusalem uh, to the shouts of the people, uh, praising God, Hosanna, hallelujah, and all these things. And he's riding a little donkey. He comes in as a humble, suffering Messiah. He will come back again in this future when Christ comes again. But this next time, he's going to be riding a horse. Um, but this first time he comes, very humble, on a small donkey. And again, this was foretold. Zechariah is writing this hundreds of years before the event even took place with Jesus coming in. But let's get to the passage and see what it, what it has. And there's a, cool, uh, a couple of cool phrases in here we need to take note of. So Zechariah 9, 9 through 11. Rejoice greatly, 
O daughter of Zion, shout aloud. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow bow of shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. For as, as for you also, because the blood of my covenant with you, I will set the, your prisoner free from the waterless pit. So again, what do we see here? There are some great things. We, we see this rejoicing taking place as this thing begins. And what do we see? We see this, this king come riding in who is righteous and having salvation. What's the purpose? In less than a week, this king will, will do what Zechariah said earlier. He will remove all the sin in a single day. He will make others righteous. But he is coming with salvation. And that's how he comes. And it says that he's humble coming in. This is the suffering Messiah. So this prophecy was fulfilled on the first Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem. But there's so much here. In verse 10, it says, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. This deals with the future reign, with the, the second coming of the Messiah when he comes again and he will rule all and everything. But, but there's still more. In verse 11, it says, because of the blood of my covenant. Did you catch that? The blood of my covenant. Now, back, and we've already covered this, but just to remind you, covenants, agreements, testaments is another word for it, uh, were sealed in different ways, sometimes by drinking wine, but sometimes ones that were super important, there would be a blood covenant. God made a blood covenant with the nation of Israel, which the nation broke. Uh, God now makes a new covenant with them, and Jesus sets up the new covenant. The old covenant is what we call the Old Testament. Um, another name for Old Testament, you know, take your Bible, divide it into two sections. You have the Old Covenant, you have the New Covenant, the Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Covenant was being replaced now, and we have a new covenant that is being made, and it's going to be made with blood. Uh, the Messiah himself would seal this. And when does this take place? Jesus talks about it at the Last Supper, just before going to the cross. And he says that he's making a new covenant with his blood. Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 28 reads, And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood for the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. You see that this is a summary of Zechariah's prophecies, that sin is going to be removed in a single day. It's going to be done by this branch who's going to be coming in riding on a donkey, and he's going to establish a new covenant with his blood. And Christ, of course, um, goes to the cross, sheds his blood for us. And we, we see this being fulfilled. Zechariah is a very important book when you get into prophecies of the Messiah, because it's, it's like we're coming to the end of the, of the, uh, the old covenant, and uh, we're building up to a, a masterful peace here, and, and we're seeing just exactly what the Messiah is doing. But we're, we're not done. We're not done yet. No, number 79, prophecy 79, is again in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 10, verse 4. 
And I'm entitling this one, The Cornerstone. Again, it's Zechariah 10.4, The Cornerstone. So as we read this one, it reads, From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. We got some really interesting words here. It says cornerstone. It says a tent peg. It talks about a battle bow, uh, bow um, for shooting arrows and stuff. And it talks about a ruler. We see these these things. And what we're coming across, Zechariah is again using some symbolism to show about the Messiah and who he's going to be. And Zechariah calls the Messiah a cornerstone. Now. Many people probably know what a cornerstone might be one or two listeners that don't. A cornerstone is the most important piece of a building. It's the dedicated stone. Um, I remember when I was a small child, about five years old, um, we were building a brand new church building. And there was a large ceremony as they started to build this and they placed a cornerstone. Um, right there at the entrance by the, um, the main doorway coming into the church building. And it was a cornerstone that was set there. And like I say, I still remember, even though I was five years old, I can still remember this ceremony of being there with my family and all the other families of the church and everything. And it was our, our pastor, uh, his name was Reverend Wellner, and he was uh, dedicating the cornerstone um, and setting up the structure then of the church. This church is built upon this. And that's what a cornerstone is. It's a very important stone. It's, it's the one that's the, like a uh, fascinating foundation part. In some cases today, we make wooden structures and we don't make a cornerstone. But I remember um, when I used to teach in the Bahamas, the elementary school that um, started off as Kingsway Academy. And as it was just a lot out in the bush, over on the eastern side, not far from an area called Fox Hill, just to the west of Fox Hill. Um, and they were set, uh, had purchased this land to build uh, just in the bush, or what people up here sometimes would call jungle. It's called bush down in the Bahamas. And they cleared it out, and then they were getting ready to pour the concrete, because it was a wooden structure of a building, but they built a concrete. And what they did is they took a Bible, and they set it in there as they poured the concrete and had a ceremony with this. I was not there at the time. I've, being a teacher at the school, I heard about this many, many times. And uh, I talked with some of the other teachers and um, who were, were still there, who were there present with this, because it was something in the school's history that was very important, that they founded this, church, or this school on the, um, the cornerstone of um, the foundation of the Bible. The word of God, and that's why that school has thrived over all these years, is, is partially because they teach the Bible, and they stand on that. And I, I know other churches and buildings who have done the same thing, that if they build a wooden structure, they still put it on a, a solid foundation at the bottom, and they have put the Word of God in there. So that's what a cornerstone basically is, and it's referencing um, something that goes back to the book of Isaiah, um, Isaiah actually used that um, in one of our prophecies we talked about before, used this to describe the Messiah. But as I said, there's a couple of other interesting words here. The cornerstone, of course, is the foundation, but it says a tent peg, a bow, like a bow and arrow, a ruler. Well, a tent peg, think about it, what a tent peg is and what it does. Those of you who have ever been tent camping, and if you have a large tent, um, 
a tent peg is something that holds up the tent. And back in these days, in ancient time, tents were very, very common, as they still are in the Middle East today. Still tents. And even at the, the camp I used to work at in the North Woods of Wisconsin, we had a huge tent we called the Big Top. And it was put up and it was held by ropes with tent pegs. And those pegs, each one of those tent pegs that went around the circular tent, um, held a tremendous burden because they would hold this thing up and no matter how bad the storms were, this tent always seemed to stand. No matter how high the winds getting up to 70, 80 miles an hour, those ropes with those pegs, those pegs were big iron pegs that were hammered into the ground deep and they held a tremendous burden in holding up the tent. And in a way here, what Zechariah, I believe, is talking about in referring to a tent peg as the Messiah. The Messiah is going to do what? Take away our burdens. He holds the burdens. How many times do we see Jesus talking and, and even Paul and, and the other writers of the New Testament saying um, to give your burdens over to God? We don't have to deal with our burdens. As I've talked about once before um, in one of our previous lessons, a person came up to me and said that they believe that they had the spiritual gift of worrying. No, you don't get a spiritual gift of worrying. No. I mean, there's spiritual gifts of prayer. There's uh, spiritual gifts of teaching and, and other things like that uh, that's recorded in Scripture. But one thing um, is to being able to hold up another person or hold up our burdens. Christians were supposed to do that. Jesus refers to this many times, telling us to care for others. Um, but this is the Messiah caring for us and carrying our burdens how weighted down we become with sin and stuff, but he removes that from us. And it talks about a battle bow, a battle bow, a, a, a bow and arrow. That is what a warrior fights with. The Messiah is fighting a spiritual battle against Satan. And again, when he comes back, it will be a physical battle against Satan and, and evil powers and stuff like this. And he wins. And the, the holder of the bow, that's usually a, a symbolic thing of the victor. And it even says that he's a ruler, that he will uh, rule all. And, of course, that's what the Messiah is. Uh, he is a king. And as it says that every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Uh, so this is dealing with the future prophecy that everybody is going to bow to him because our Messiah is also a ruler. Well, we go to number 80. Number 80 in this, um, this series, and this is Zechariah. Yes, we're still in Zechariah. And this one is really interesting. Uh, Zechariah chapter 11, it's verses 12 and 13. This one is really special because I entitled this one, The 30 Pieces of Silver. The 30 Pieces of Silver. So let's, let's uh, look at what Zechariah chapter 11, 12 through 13 um, has, to, has written, and let's read this. Then I said to them, it, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out, as my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. The lordly price at which I was prized by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now, that is an interesting phrase. The 30 pieces of silver being thrown into the house of the Lord, into the temple, to um, and given to the potter. Now, 
we got to get back 30 pieces of silver. That's significant. you got to go back all the way to the book of Exodus to see what that pays for. Now, Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, reads that the price of a slave was 30 pieces of silver, but just not that. That's for a slave, but it was there was something else to it. The price for a person doing service to the Lord, for services to the Lord, was also 30 pieces of silver. So it's the price of a slave, but it's also the price for um, doing service for the Lord. 30 pieces of silver. Now, if you know the story of Judas Iscariot, how he sells out Jesus, goes to the high priest secretively, what will you give me if I turn him over to you? What do they offer him? 30 pieces of silver. And of course, as you know, um, Judas, he, he accepts this. But then later, his conscience starts to bother him so badly over what he has done that he goes back and he has sees that he has betrayed Jesus into the sinful hands of the people. Jesus is going to the cross and he doesn't want the this blood money anymore. And what's he do? Judas throws it into the temple. The, the priests pick up the coins. Uh, the priests, these were Sadducees, very financially um, set off people, the most wealthy people in the land were the Sadducees. Um, they ran everything. They ran the entire temple business, as we've talked about before, all by the money and became filthy rich because of this. So they pick up the 30 pieces of silver and they say, hey, we can't put this in the treasury. It's blood money that we paid out. <laughs> it was not that ironic. So they buy a piece of a field where there's a lot of clay there, and it was the potter's field. And what does Zechariah call this area that is that they buy the potter's field? So now Matthew uses this this prophecy here in his description of how Judas sells out Jesus, and in doing so, he he just we see the fulfillment of this prophecy. Let me just read for you here. Um, going to Matthew, if you want to follow along, Matthew it's chapter twenty-seven, verses three through ten, and we see what we just read in Zechariah. We're going to see this all unfold right before our eyes, and this is so cool. So Matthew twenty-seven, three through ten reads. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. <laughs> they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for the strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him, uh, from uh, on whom the price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them uh, for them the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So we, we saw this back in Jeremiah. We see it now again in Zechariah. So we see the this prophecy being fulfilled. Isn't it ironic, too? The priests were glad to pay out the, the price for service of God, which I just find that fascinating. Uh, these 30 pieces of silver, the price for service of God. 
And uh, then when Judas tries to give it back, they, oh, we can't take this. This is blood money. We can't put this in a temple. I mean, what hypocrites. Gee. But anyway, how fascinating that prophecy is and how it became fulfilled. Now, there's one more um, that we want, or actually there's two more we still got to cover here in just the book of Zechariah. We'll go through these quickly because they're very easy to see. So we're at number 81, prophecy 81. And this is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I told you there's a lot in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And this one I am entitling, The One Whom They Have Pierced. The One Whom They Have Pierced. So Zechariah 12, 10 reads, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they took or they looked on me, on him who they had pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So this is talking, Zechariah is foretelling the death of the Messiah, how he would be pierced. That's the word that's used. He's going to be pierced and they would mourn for him. There were people standing there at the cross mourning as he is being pierced. And we know the Messiah was pierced by a Roman spear. Now, a Roman spear is not very high. Um, They're just a little over six feet in length. And they were held about two-thirds the way up, uh, which also shows us that Jesus was on a short cross to pierce him with uh, um, the spear like that. But Jesus being pierced, which we know as Pilate had it tested when the centurion came to Pilate and said, hey, um, that he's dead. And Pilate was like, how could he be dead already? Go double check it. So he orders the, the man in charge, the centurion, who would be overseeing all these soldiers doing this. And to make sure that he was dead, he appeared dead, looked dead. Uh, make sure he wasn't fainting or whatever. They take the spear and they stab him in the side. By stabbing him in the side, what they're doing, they're stabbing. Um, he's on a short cross, but they're going underneath the rib cage, no doubt, right up to the heart. That's a fatal blow. And as they push the spear in and then pull it out, uh, John records that blood and water flowed. And as we've talked about this before in a previous lesson, Blood certainly would come out when you stab the body. Water shows that they had perforated um, the pericardial sac around the heart and the uh, transidate, the pericardial fluid, which looks like water, also came out. John gave a very, very accurate physiological description um, of the trauma that was done here, yet it's prophesied also in Zechariah. Let's take us to that number 82 number 82. And this is the last one for Zechariah. And then we have a couple for Malachi we're going to touch on quickly. But number 82, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. And it says, the sheep will scatter. The sheep will scatter. That's what the title of this one is. And and Jesus himself actually quotes this one. Um, And it's recorded in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. But let's read Zechariah 13, 7. Uh, to see what this prophecy is. And it reads, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. Hmm, man who stands next to me. Declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. I will turn my hand against the little ones. So we have a shepherd, that's a messianic title. The one who stands next, there's a man who's standing next to him. And then there's others, it talks about the sheep. The sheep is symbolic here of the disciples. So we have the shepherd, which is Jesus, his disciples there, and then it says the man. 
who stands next to me. That is somebody who is betraying me. Matthew chapter 26, verse 1, have Jesus in the garden when he's being arrested. Judas Iscariot leads the soldiers to Jesus to arrest him. But in Matthew 26, 31, it reads, Then Jesus said to them, You shall all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. At the Last Supper, Jesus is actually proclaiming this prophecy. He said this is about to happen. It's like, wake up, folks. At the end of this meal, wake up. Something major is going to happen here. Zechariah's prophecy is about to come true. And it's interesting that Jesus himself, God, is speaking this in both situations. Awake against my shepherd, declares the Lord. So this is letting us know that God is ordaining this. Jesus wasn't accidentally or just by circumstance, random circumstance taken by the Romans and and crucified. This was all planned and that the disciples would desert him. We saw this back in the book of Psalms that that the disciples would leave him. um, And it's exactly what happened. And one man caused this, and that was Judas Iscariot. So, of course, the scattering of the sheep, disciples fleeing, and Jesus himself used this prophecy. Now that takes us to the book of Malachi, the last book, and we have two prophecies that we're going to look at very quickly here. Actually, they do not pertain as much to Jesus as they do to the forerunner, John the Baptist. So let's take a look at these two major prophecies concerning John the Baptist. We have now concluded the messianic prophecies concerning Jesus, but God gave us Um, another person who's going to be the forerunner, who's going to be the announcer, like someone who's going to broadcast what's about to take place, Uh, the pre-game show host here, and that's John the Baptist. And so this is Prophecy 83. Um, Even though it's John the Baptist, I'm including this in here because, for one, they're related, but also that, uh, I mean, they were cousins, but the thing is, I want to show is this is all talking about the coming of the Messiah. So in Malachi, this is number 83, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi 3, verse 1, and I'm just entitling this John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Now, this course wouldn't be complete if we didn't mention John, um, since we're talking about Messianic prophecies, because he is specifically prophesied to come also. And Malachi 3, 1 reads, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come out of his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, John the Baptist is recorded in the four or three of the Gospels directly, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is as the fulfillment of this prophecy, that he is the forerunner, one who's coming before. And in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, it reads, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before me? It's basically quoting Malachi 3.1, as does Mark chapter 1, verse 2, where it reads, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way? And likewise, Luke, who gives us more about John the Baptist, tells us in Luke chapter 1, verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. So we see the coming, the announcement of the, uh, of the Messiah will be preceded first by a forerunner, and that is John the Baptist. And that comes right out of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. But Malachi's not done. He has one more, and this will be our concluding prophecy in the series. It's number 84, and this is Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And I'm entitling this one, More on the Baptist. 
more on the Baptist. We get a little bit more information here that is important that comes out easily uh, seen in the Gospels on this. Let's just read, first of all, uh, Malachi 4, 5, and see what this says. It reads, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, Elijah was one of the greatest prophets of all time. Uh, he performed many miracles and called the people back to God. And you might recall this encounter with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel when God called down fire and burned up the altar and stuff. Um, and so he, what was the whole purpose here? It was Elijah was being used by God to call the people back to the Lord. Well, the purpose was to restore a lost generation to the Lord God. How similar is the, the role of John the Baptist? What was he doing? He's calling people back to God, to the Lord. That was his role. That's what he was sent to do, to prepare the way of the coming. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all speak specifically of that. And let's just read these really quick to see how this Malachi prophecy is fulfilled in this way. So the first, I'm going to read out of Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, which reads, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Uh, skip down a little bit. You go to Matthew chapter 17, verses 12 and 13. The disciples were asking Jesus about why, why were we told Elijah had to come? Well, it was talked about in this book of Malachi. But in Matthew 17, 12 and 13, Jesus says, But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Mark picks this up in Mark chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. It reads, And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. So we see this, the, the same thing. Jesus is saying and calling him Elijah. Obviously, it's symbolic. But we go to Luke chapter 1, verse 17. And this is talking about the birth of John the Baptist, as he, um, the angel is describing what he is going to be like. What's his role in the coming Messiah? And in Luke 1, 17, we read, And he will go before him in spirit and in the power of Elijah. There's your clue right there. In the power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That is the best description and the best interpretation of this Malachi prophecy. John the Baptist is the Messiah, not so much the miracle worker, no, but what the role was. The role was to call the people back to God. Elijah did phenomenal miracles, but why did he do these miracles? To show that what he was saying was coming from God, to draw people to God. That was his major role. He was phenomenal at this. John the Baptist, the same thing. He was calling people to the Lord to get ready for the coming Messiah who was going to suffer. Well, with that, we have now concluded. It's been the goal of this course to prove to people 
to these listeners and stuff who are following on the podcast, for one, to prove that Jesus truly is the Messiah. Then he came and he fulfilled these like 84 major prophecies, but over 250 prophecies in total that he did these. We started in Genesis and we have concluded now with Malachi. And as I said, we didn't cover all of them, but we covered the major ones. And if you now see also something that we have done, we have bound the Old Covenant or the Old Testament to the New. You see, it's like taking one long piece of yarn and crocheting it into like a sweater. It's one thread. You see a major thread going from Genesis all the way to the New Covenant, to Revelation. There is a thread, and that thread is all about the Messiah. And it is woven through all these Old Testament books. And it's the foundation of our New Covenant, the New Testament. in in this wonderful thing. So I hope you've enjoyed this series. I have so enjoyed uh, the comments and getting comments and stuff from people, people who have come up to me uh, just this past weekend person. A couple of people came up and told me how much they enjoy um, listening to this series and how much they've learned from this. And that's our goal is to teach people about Jesus, the Messiah. He truly is the Messiah. This is a, a a miracle that people often don't catch, how Jesus fulfilled all of these Old Testament prophecies. For one person to do it, it's mathematically impossible, yet Jesus did it. So I hope you've learned more about Jesus. I hope you hold Jesus a lot more dear in your life. And again, I hope I've strengthened your faith through this series. I hope you join us for another one of our series um, that we'll be having coming up as we've concluded this one. We'll be starting another podcast series very soon. Um, But I want to thank you again so much for joining. And until we meet again, please take care and God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.